Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Our guest this evening is Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii. Tonight, we'll be getting to know Representative Gabbard and where she stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions. And then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Tulsi Gabbard was born in Leiloa Loa, American Samoa in 1981. When she was two, her family moved to Hawaii. As a teenager, she co-founded a nonprofit focused on educating youngsters about protecting the environment. When she was 21, Gabbard was elected to the state legislature, the youngest person ever elected in the state. She then joined the Hawaii Army National Guard and in 2004 volunteered to deploy, serving two tours in the Middle East. In between those stints overseas, Gabbard was a legislative aide to U.S. Senator Daniel Akaka. She was later elected to the Honolulu City Council, then in 2012 to the U.S. House of Representatives from Hawaii's 2nd District. She has been re-elected three times. Representative Gabbard serves on the House Armed Services Committee as well as the House Financial Services Committee. She is a graduate of Hawaii Pacific University and is married to Abraham Williams. Congresswoman Gabbard, thank you so much for Good joining morning. us on Conversation with the Candidate. Great to be back here. Thank you. We appreciate you. your time. Uh, so as we heard, uh, you've accomplished a lot in a short amount of time. Uh, the service is admirable, and in fact, you're going to be leaving the campaign trail here to continue serving uh, in the near future. But uh, you're only over that constitutional age threshold by a few years for the office of the presidency. So what do you say to those people who say, gosh, maybe we need someone with more life experience? Uh, I would say look at the experience that I have. You know, I've had the opportunity to serve the people of Hawaii at every level of government, serving as a state representative, later as a member of our Honolulu City Council, which is uh, one of the largest city councils in the country. My district alone represented about 100,000 people, and then now serving in Congress for nearly seven years, really focused on national security, serving, as you mentioned, on the House Foreign Affairs, the Armed Services, the Homeland Securities Committees. Those experiences combined with the experience that I bring as a soldier, uh, the experience that I've had deploying twice to the Middle East, understanding truly the cost of war, the consequences, and who pays the price, uh, give me that background and frankly that conviction necessary to walk into the Oval Office on day one prepared to fulfill that responsibility of Commander-in-Chief. So some people feel that this Democratic primary is taking the Democrats too far to the left. But there's an undeniable energy right now around members of Congress and others who identify openly as Democratic Socialists. Mm -hmm. Is that the future of the party? I don't know, but I think the future of the party and the future of the country, instead of being focused on which label or which subsection of the party you belong to or identify with, instead let's just focus on serving the people. Let's focus on dealing with the challenges that families across this country are struggling with and work together to find solutions. So if that means you're working together with people who have different ideologies within our own party or reaching across the aisle and working with Republicans, we've got to stay more focused on how we can deliver results, how we can solve these uh, perpetual challenges that, that really um, we've been debating in, in far too many elections in this country. 
it's clear you're going to go your own way when you want to do it and you're going to do what you believe is right. Yes. As you've seen this bounce here from the last couple of debates, we've seen other candidates attack you over your 2017 meeting with Bashar al-Assad in Syria, who the U.S. identifies as a war criminal. Do you have any regrets now over that meeting facing the questions that you're facing? I know that you say you don't want America to be the world's policeman yeah. and you're going to meet with people in furtherance of peace, but the political cost that you're paying right now, do you regret that meeting? I don't care about the political cost. What I care about is doing what's best for our country. And if it means meeting with a dictator or a hundred dictators in order to prevent the unnecessary loss of life of even one of my brothers and sisters in uniform, I'll do what's necessary because I know the reality, which is the only alternative to diplomacy is war. And for too long, we've had leaders who have lacked the courage to meet with those, whether they be adversaries or dictators in the interests of our national security, keeping the American people safe, and in the interests of peace. So this is the kind of leadership that I seek to bring. This is the kind of leadership that we need, especially at this time where we're seeing increasing tensions between the United States and nuclear-armed countries like Russia and China that are pushing us closer and closer to the brink of nuclear catastrophe. We don't need leaders who are going to pretend to act tough without thinking about the consequences of their actions and how it's making the American people less safe. The kind of foreign policy leadership that I'll bring is one that's focused on cooperation rather than conflict, stopping being the world's police, ending these wasteful regime change wars, and de-escalating these tensions so that we can work towards a future that is peaceful and prosperous. Does a president have to draw a line, though, at some point and say, I'm not going to meet with this person who is not bringing peace to their own people, the opposite, bloodshed? I don't think so. I don't think that's in the interest of peace because when there are tensions or there is war, a potential for conflict, you don't avoid that war, you don't prevent that war just by hanging out with your friends or talking to your allies. That's, that's literally the objective of diplomacy, is to meet with those leaders who you disagree with, to try to prevent or bring about an end to war and conflict. And I look back to leaders like JFK, who met with Khrushchev, look to Reagan and what he accomplished in meeting with and working with Gorbachev in passing that historic INF treaty that unfortunately this president has just torn up and walked away from sparking off a new nuclear arms race. There are many different examples of leaders in our country's history who have put the interests of the American people first without regard to whether or not that decision is politically popular or not. That's the kind of leadership that inspires me and that's the kind of uh, context. That's the way that I'll make my decisions, putting country and our people first. All right, Congresswoman Gabbard, thank you for thank answering you. these questions of here. Of course, great the town to be hall here. awaits. Coming up after the break, we'll bring our studio audience into this conversation. Stay with us. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's You Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join You Local. See you there. Welcome back to Conversation with the Candidate and our candidate this evening, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. We have our Town Hall of New Hampshire voters here to continue this conversation, and we're going to get right into it with Gary Evans. Hi. Welcome to New Hampshire. Hi. I have the question of the day, I think. Um, with uh, almost uh, 40,000 gun deaths a year in the United States, a mass shooting every other week, every other developed country in the world doesn't have this issue. Mm -hmm. So what would you do to do something about it? 
It's long overdue that Washington took action to pass sensible gun safety legislation. Uh, this is not about infringing on people's Second Amendment rights. It's about putting responsible safety regulations in place so that we're making sure our, our community and our families and our society is safe. I think there are a number of other issues that we need to address. One is dealing with the mental lack of mental health services across our country, but also really I think what's at the heart of this is how further and further our country is being divided. When we see racism and bigotry being fomented, uh, pitting one side against the other, we see how identity politics are being used for the purposes of furthering political interests or campaigns. It's tearing our country apart that's further fueling this this animosity and, and people who lack compassion uh, and empathy for their fellow Americans. Uh, so we need to make sure that Congress passes this legislation. We've got to come together as a country to do so. I think uh, the legislation, I believe, that was recently passed here or will be passed soon, closing some of the loopholes and background checks is the kind of thing that we need to do, again, that has the support of most Americans across the country. But ultimately, we've got to come together in order to accomplish that and recognize this is within all of our interests because no one wants to see their loved one go shopping at Walmart and wonder whether or not they'll come home. No one wants to send their kid off to school in the morning and wonder if they'll come home. So this is something that we've got to come together on as a country and overcome the hyper-partisan divides that have stood in the way of progress for far too long. Okay, thank you. Thanks, thank Gary. You, Quick follow-up there, Congresswoman. The Second Amendment. Yes. Uh, a lot of Democrats are questioning whether that still serves a purpose here in, in this modern era of mass shootings. What's your opinion on that? I support the Second Amendment. Uh, I think just like with the First Amendment, however, there have to be sensible regulations in place for the safety of our society. So just like with the First Amendment, uh, you're not allowed to yell fire in a crowded theater. That would put other people at risk. We want to make sure with the Second Amendment we're protecting people's rights and freedoms, but doing so in a way that does not put other people at risk. Okay, next question comes from James Almendinger. Welcome to the Granite State. Thank you very much. I'm sure, or I hope you would agree with me, that climate change is real. Yes. Um, that it is a result of human activity and that it is a serious threat to us all. What would you do to make climate change a priority in the 2020 presidential election? Thank you. Thank you for your question and raising this issue. And I agree with you. This is something that uh, hits very close to home for us and people from my home state in Hawaii uh, because we're the most remote island chain in the world. And as such, uh, things like climate change are very concerning. Um, as such, the protection just of our natural resources, our beautiful home, uh, is something that is not just a political talking point. This is about our lives. This is about our culture. Uh, and it is necessary for us to do all that we can to protect it. Uh, we know that climate change is a threat that we've got to address through aggressive and ambitious um, actions to get us off of fossil fuels, to make it so we're ending the nearly $30 billion in subsidies we're still giving to these fossil fuel companies who are making massive profits, and instead take our taxpayer dollars and invest it in building a green renewable energy 
economy and training a workforce in investing in our infrastructure and looking at our agriculture system in this country and how it's contributing more carbon to the environment and looking to see how can we do this in a more sustainable way that is protecting our soil so that we're growing healthy food to feed people and protecting our environment as well but you know as well as i do that even if we do all of this now even if we carry out uh, legislation like the one I've introduced, the Off Fossil Fuels Act, that will help us accomplish this, uh, it's a global challenge and require working with leaders of other countries. And this is where you know, foreign policy is inseparable from domestic policy. Uh, as president, the kind of leadership I'll bring is a foreign policy that's focused on cooperation rather than conflict, working with other countries, being able to de-escalate tensions with other countries like China, so that we can work out our differences, whether it's related to trade or security, but work together on issues like climate change that really serve this common interest that we have as people who share this planet so that we can make sure we have a future for our kids and their kids and generations to come. Thank you. That Thank would be you. a welcome change. Yes. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, James. You. Next question comes from Deborah Stuke. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Many of us moderates have felt stuck in a broken two-party system. Mm -hmm. Um, with opposing agendas. We, pre we, we, we feel like the politicians are prevented from working together because the parties have, they have their goals. Right. And w I want to know, what about the middle ground? Yeah. Every time a party gains control, legislation is reversed and the country is turned upside down. How will you work with the other side on hot button issues? Thank you. This is such an important question because it's necessary for all of these things that we're talking about, whether it's gun safety or climate change or immigration reform or economic reform, tax policy, every aspect of our lives uh, thus far is impacted by the inability of leaders in Washington to work together for the good of the people, to put the people's interests ahead of their own partisan interests. Uh, this is something that I saw very quickly when I was first elected to Congress back in 2012, where within the first few days, maybe the first week or so, uh, we had 84 new members of Congress elected, 50 Democrats, the rest were Republicans. And, you know, we got to know each other in those first couple of days, and then all of a sudden, Democrats go here, Republicans go there, and the separation began. And I know both sides, I talked to my Republican friends, we both got messages from the party leadership saying, well, Democrats, we don't want you working with these Republicans because that may help them in their reelection. You don't want to give them a good, a good uh, bullet point that goes on their brochure. And my Republican, said, my Republican friends said they heard the same thing from their leadership as well. Putting party interests ahead of the interests of people and actually coming together to solve problems. This completely turned me off because that's not why I asked the people in my community for the privilege of serving them. They entrusted me with their vote so that I could go to Washington and fight hard for all of them, for every person in Hawaii and across this country. That's the kind of leadership that I bring and it's the leadership that comes from the values instilled in me as a soldier, really, where in my unit, we have people from all across the country, all different political ideologies, race, religion, ethnicity, orientation. But as we, we stood together, both here at home and deployed to the Middle East, we stood as one and we spoke as one and we worked as one because we understood our mission was to serve our country, 
to serve the people. Uh, and that value of service above self is what is most important. That's the kind of leadership that I would bring. Continuing the work that I've done in Congress, reaching across the aisle, again, focused on putting people first. That is what is necessary for leaders in this country and for us to come together and unify around the fact that you know, we love our country. We love each other. We care for each other. We care very much for our home. And if we come together and build bridges based on that unifying principle, putting politics aside and focusing on people, then we can really get things done. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thanks, Deborah. Next question comes from Rich Bruno. Hi, good morning, good morning. Congresswoman. Good morning. Thank you for taking my question. Thank you. Um, in your opening, you answered much of what my question is about. First of all, thank you for your military service. My privilege. We have something thank in you. common. You were on foreign soil uh, with a fighting a war. So was an I in Vietnam. Wow. So I, uh, I, it really is close to my heart with regard to the loss of life for our ground forces. Yes. We have some ongoing hot spots right now. And uh, Yemen, Syria, what really would be your philosophy with regard to what's happening right now yeah. and the commitment of ground forces? Yeah. Well, thank you for your service. Uh, when thank we talk you. about the cost of war, you have seen it firsthand as I have. Uh, we have seen the loss of life of our brothers and sisters in uniform. We've seen our friends come home uh, dealing with both vi visible and invisible wounds. Uh, we've got to stop trying to be the world's police because we've seen from the war that you served in to the one that I served in how detrimental and costly that has been. Yes, to our men and women in uniform to our families, military families, and to every single American in this country, what to speak of to the people in the countries where we are waging these wars. This is why I'm so committed to serve as president, to serve as commander in chief, to bring about this sea change in our foreign policy that will end these wasteful wars, bring our troops home, and take the trillions of dollars. We've spent over $6 trillion since 9-11 alone on these wars and this is what breaks my heart so much is because as I travel across the country what I hear from folks at home and in big cities and small towns people are saying hey our teachers need to get paid what they deserve to teach our kids they need the supplies they need to make sure that our kids are getting the best education possible we need health care for everyone who needs it whether they can you know they're making a lot of money or making a little bit of money there are very real and urgent needs that we have, but time and time again, politicians tell them, sorry, there's just not enough money, yet they write a check $4 billion every month to Afghanistan. That's what we're spending right now. I know this opioid epidemic, for example, is ravaging New Hampshire. It's ravaging so many people across this country, yet we lack the kind of treatment facilities and opportunities for those who are uh, victims of this epidemic told once again sorry there's just not enough money not enough money this is why again I'll, I'll say it over and over our foreign policy cannot be separated from our domestic policy it's why it's so critical that we end these wasteful wars and redirect these resources towards serving these urgent needs of people here at home so I want to close on one last thought on this because too often, and it surprises me sometimes, but too often as I talk about ending these wasteful wars, people say, okay, so you're an isolationist then. You want us, the United States, to turn our back on the world and just mind our own business. No.
That's not what I'm saying. And it's a sad state of affairs that by saying end wasteful wars, people assume that's isolationism as though the only way we can relate with other countries in the world is by bombing them or by enacting crippling economic sanctions. That's wrong. That's wrong. And that's not the kind of leadership that we should be providing. The kind of leadership that I'll bring as president is one where we can be a positive influence and a force for good in the world, where instead of running around as the world's police, we can work with other countries towards that mutual goal that we have, which is peace and prosperity for all of our people. Thank you Thank very much. You. Next question comes from Kenneth Berlin. How are you? Welcome, Congresswoman. Thank you. Good Thank you for you. your service. My privilege. Uh, as we watch the debates, okay, uh, there are, as you know, 20 plus candidates. Yeah. And when you have three to four minutes, to say something, it doesn't really give you much of an education no. about what the candidate represents. So my question is, what makes you different mm -hmm. from the other 20, uh, 2,700 or however many <laughs> candidates there are, uh, in terms of uh, policy, in terms of uh, how you would uh, do uh, certain things, uh, you know, for uh, Medicare, mm -hmm. things like that that separate you? from everybody else that's running because to me it seems like more of the candidates agree on things mm -hmm. than disagree on things which is good mm -hmm. but I'd like to know what makes you stand out um, we don't have time to go through every issue <laughs> but I want to I want to I want to talk about I think two overarching things that speak to the difference in the kind of leadership um, that I bring and I agree with you first of all I mean we're talking about the most important issues of our time and to only give us 60 seconds yeah. to allow voters to make that decision and that judgment, I think, is a disservice to the voters in this country because then what you're left with is really a soundbite. You deserve better than that. Uh, the, the two main things that I would, I would like to point out are uh, a little bit of what we've been discussing here. Because of the experience that I bring, uh, I've served in Congress now for nearly seven years, focused on national security, focused on the Foreign Affairs Committee, Armed Services Committee, Homeland Security Committee, as well as the experience that I have as a soldier. I've served now for over 16 years, still currently serving as a major in the National Guard and deployed twice to the Middle East. And the most important responsibility that the president has is to serve as commander in chief. And the experience that I bring uh, enables me to be prepared to do that job on day one. And why that's so critical is because we have suffered in the past in this country for the consequences of a president who is not prepared to do that job and as a result uh, falls under the influence of the foreign policy establishment, the military industrial complex, and even the uniformed general officers who will tell them what they should do. We need a president who uh, has the experience, the understanding, and the conviction to always do what's best for the American people and what's in our national security interest. So that's, that's, I think, a big differentiating point between me and most of the other people who are running for president. I think the second one is uh, I have and will continue to be focused on how we can bring our country together, putting those interests of the people ahead of party politics. I think it is a disservice to voters in this country how divisive our politics has become as people look towards uh, their next election or how they can get more political power um, rather than actually just listening and serving the needs of the American people. 
this is something that uh, is, is central to who I am and why I'm in this. Uh, and I will continue to lead focused on bringing the American people together, unifying our country based on the principles that our country was founded on in ensuring that we have a government of, by, and for the people, standing up for those freedoms enshrined in our Constitution for every American, not just for those who agree with me. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much. You very right, thanks, much. Ken. Congresswoman, we have a social media question coming in here from Matt Carrier. He asks, where do you stand on term limits? Term limits is an interesting question. I think it's a problem when you have, uh, you know, people who are more interested in making a career out of politics than those who are really interested in coming in and serving. I think this is a debate that the American people need to have, uh, looking through what the consequences of those would be. I have heard from some folks in states who have enacted one or two term limits in their states uh, and seen maybe an unintended negative consequence, whereas the elected official uh, turns through, the turnover is very high, what ends up happening is you have the chiefs of staff or the hired staff, unelected people, who then hold the power and the influence. You have lobbyists then who are coming in and instead of people talking to the elected uh, official, they'll then go to the staff or the bureaucracy and, and uh, you know, wage their influence campaign there knowing that the elected official is going to come in, maybe just stay for two or four years and lean heavily on the staff for advice and so on, making it so that the accountability is really not there because they're going to people who are behind the scenes and not accountable to voters. So I think as we have that debate, and I think it's an important one, we just have to consider what some unintended negative consequences will be. Okay, and we've got about 30 seconds left. Uh, you're going to be off the campaign trail for two weeks serving. Yes. How are you going to campaign while you're gone? I won't be able to campaign while I'm gone. <laughs> so what uh, happens with I'm actually with your going campaign? on Monday. I'll be, I'll be, uh, my orders start on Monday for my uh, two weeks of, of Army training. So I'll be wearing uh, a different uniform and uh, relying on our supporters and our volunteers across the country to be able to continue to get our message out uh, while I'm serving in a different way. Okay. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. We have our crack team of New Hampshire voters here, and the questions continue in a town hall format, and we're going to start with Hella Ross. Hi, Hi, nice to see you. Good to see you, Helen. Thank you for your service in the military and in Congress. Thank you. And I'd like to ask you, what policy proposals are you going to implement to address racial inequalities and injustices across the spectrum of our society to include educational and economic opportunities, as well as housing and medical treatment discrimination within our communities of color? Thank you. Thank you, Helen. This is such an important question. Uh, I'm grateful to have grown up in the only state in the country that is a majority of minorities and uh, bringing that perspective to leadership in the White House I think is really important to provide that that guideway towards achieving that racial equality towards achieving that equality and justice for all that we we don't have in this country I think this is a, a critical thing as we look to the many different ways where these injustices continue whether it be in the ones that you've mentioned uh, to include criminal justice reform uh, and others and making the kinds of investments in those who have been left behind for far too long. 
Uh, in, in Hawaii, people have come there, and Dr. Martin Luther King, when he visited in the late 50s, uh, he was amazed by what he felt, which is what we in Hawaii call the spirit of aloha, which to me is the key to how we bridge these divides and make sure that we are lifting every person in this country together. And what that aloha is, uh, people think it's just hello and goodbye, but it really means I come to you with an open heart and a recognition that we are all connected, that we are all God's children, regardless of the color of our skin or where we come from or who we love or how we worship or if we worship at all. And if this is where we are starting from, if this is how we are engaging with one another, then we recognize uh, and are inspired to care for one another in all that we are doing. And to me, this is the greatest form of patriotism because being a patriot, loving our country, means we love each other and we care for each other as Americans, which will then inspire us to come together to solve these great challenges that unfortunately have left a huge population in our country behind and overcome these divides that have torn our country apart. Thank you very Thank much you. for the question. We have a Facebook question coming in now from Sean Roberson. He says, New Hampshire is the only state without an inpatient unit or emergency services at its VA medical center. Mm -hmm. Should that be changed or should local hospitals have a relationship to treat inpatient veterans? I think that does need to change, but I think it's a balanced approach between the two. You know, the VA provides a tremendous service to our veterans. I know a lot of veterans who get their care from the VA are very happy with it. However, there are still far too many barriers uh, for veterans who struggle to get the right kind of service in the VA or gain entry into the VA. We've got to make sure that the VA is able to fulfill its mission of serving and taking care of our veterans. It's not always the case, for example, and we face this in my home state of Hawaii, where you have rural communities who may be far away from the VA hospital. And in that case, there need to be partnerships with the local hospital, with the local health care provider, so that bottom line, every veteran's able to get that quality health care that they need, that they've earned, and that they deserve. Next question coming from Elizabeth Radisich. Hi, good evening. Thank you for being here, Thank Congresswoman. You so much. Um, so you recently made a comment doubting Kamala Harris's fitness to be commander-in-chief. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true or not because she's one of the few candidates that I haven't met yet. Um, while your military service is remarkable and it is admirable, it has also been reported that you held positions in the early 2000s that were against gay marriage and for conversion therapy. So as a person with LGBTQ family members, that's a concern for me. How have your views evolved so that LGBTQ service members could be assured that President Gabbard would treat them with the reverence and respect that they deserve, rather than facing the discrimination that some have faced under the Trump administration? Thank you. Thank you for this important question. Uh, I think there was a two-part question in there on two different subjects, so I'll try to answer both uh, quickly. Um, I talked a little bit about this in the first part of our segment here, about how important it is to have a commander-in-chief who has the national security background and experience to make the kinds of decisions that best serve our interests to keep the American people safe and to stop sending my brothers and sisters in uniform to fight in wasteful and counterproductive wars that make us less safe, that strengthen terrorist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and that cost us so much money. 
but to speak of the damage that's done in the countries where we wage these wars. So the likes of Iraq and Libya and Syria, these are the kinds of things that uh, we need to stop doing, these regime change wars. That's the kind of leadership that I bring. And my concern about any number of candidates who lack that national security experience so that they, if elected, would go in and continue to listen to the foreign policy establishment that has influenced both parties that has resulted in so many of these wasteful wars continuing to be waged. So that's the difference between myself and others. May I clarify sure. then on that? So then the statement that you made against uh, Senator Harris was not just against Senator Harris, but it's against a host of most of the other candidates who don't have the service that you do. It, I mean, not, other than you and Mayor Buttigieg. It's, it's not, it's actually not, I, I don't believe that military service should be a requirement for someone to run for president or serve as president. What okay. I'm focused on is the national security background and the experience that I bring of having served in Congress for nearly seven years on the Foreign Affairs Committee, on the Armed Services Committee, on the Homeland Security Committee, and of course the personal experience and background that I bring that inform those decisions that I would make as President and Commander-in-Chief. So it's really okay. focused on having that understanding and background and experience so that you know, as I would walking in on day one as Commander-in-Chief, how I would make those decisions that best serve our national security and the American people. Okay, thank you for clarifying that point. To your second point. question, it's a really important one. Uh, I want to clarify, first of all, I never supported conversion therapy. Okay. For most of my life growing up, I'd never heard of it. I didn't even know what it was until later on in life. Okay. Uh, but, but you're right, I was, I was raised in a very socially conservative household. And I grew up uh, with views when I was very young that I no longer hold today. Serving in the military opened my eyes and, and I grew in so many different ways. Uh, I served with LGBTQ service members both here at home and while deployed. I know that they would give their life for me and I would give my life for them. So when we talk about fighting for all Americans, when I talk about fighting for the freedom and equality and justice for all Americans. We are talking about all Americans, including our LGBTQ brothers and sisters who still face discrimination today. Now, throughout my time in Congress, uh, again, for nearly seven years, I have served and fought for an end to that discrimination, okay. fought for equality. Uh, we recently passed the Equality Act, a bill that I was a co-sponsor of. I have been a uh, member of the Equality Caucus throughout my time in Congress, uh, and I'm proud of the rating that I've gotten from the Human Rights Campaign, 100% rating on their legislative assessment of my record. So I will continue that commitment that I have shown throughout my time in Congress in serving as president to continue to fight to end housing discrimination, discrimination in the workplace, discrimination in schools, things that, that LGBTQ Americans are still struggling with to make sure that truly every single person in this country is treated equally and with respect. Thank you, I appreciate Thank your you. clarifying and your answer. Thank you very much. Thank you, much. Elizabeth. Next question comes from Leonard Morrill. Thank you. The Medicare Part D bill that prevented drug negotiation was passed in the Bush years. Mm -hmm. Both parties have had control of the House and Senate and have not changed the law. That tells me that they really don't care. Do you support the president's idea of using the executive order to get rid of this law? I think Congress needs to do the right thing. Congress needs to take action. Really, when you look at why hasn't Congress done the right thing now, I, I agree with you. They don't care. 
you get a lot of lip service coming from politicians who are more interested in getting that pack check from the lobbyist that represents the big pharmaceutical companies than they are about putting the interests of the people first. And this is heartbreaking because we see uh, you know, families who are struggling now just to get the insulin that they need for treating diabetes. Life-saving medicines that people aren't able to afford. Why is that? It's because of this, this influence of big pharma over Washington um, that has stopped this essential change from being made that I strongly support this change that would make it so that the United States government can negotiate with prescription drug companies to bring down the cost. Uh, the United States government is the biggest customer of prescription drugs in the entire world. So when you think about what kind of leverage we have to drive these prices down that we are not utilizing now, uh, it's crazy and people su are suffering as a result. Um, this is exactly the, the perfect example of what I'm talking about when we say that we don't have a government of, by, and for the people. We have a government of, by, and for greedy corporations or the rich and powerful, the very few who are benefiting from the perpetuation of these types of laws. I think it's important to recognize the role that the executive branch has. Executive orders need to be used appropriately and carefully. Congress needs to do its job and get out of the pocket of these greedy corporations and actually serve the interests of our people because lives depend on it. This is not a game and it's not a joke. They got to do their job. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Leonard. Next question comes from Nancy Keene. Hi, to follow up on another senior issue. Um, we keep hearing rhetoric about Social Security being an entitlement and that Social Security may run out by 2034. What are your feelings about protecting Social Security that many seniors rely on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I don't agree that Social Security is an entitlement. Thank it's you. something that every one of us pays into throughout a lifetime of working and you deserve the, the peace and the knowledge that what you paid into will be there for you when you retire Thank you. and when you're ready to start drawing your benefits. It is absolutely unacceptable that still to this day, politicians look to raiding the Social Security account, using it as a slush fund to pay for other things rather than treating it as a hands-off account that is only and should only be used for Social Security beneficiaries. That is, to me, the number one thing that's got to change. That cannot be accessible to be used to cover the shortfall for other things in the federal government's budget. Again, this is where on every single issue we can point to where are taxpayer dollars going, making it so that politicians think they can raid your Social Security account. The more we continue wasting trillions of dollars on these, these wasteful wars, the more they'll think that they need to to uh, you know, use other funds in the government to pay for other things rather than putting the interests of the people first. So I think that's a huge thing that we need to do. And I think another thing that we need to do to make sure that the Social Security Fund is, is uh, sustainable and there not only for you but for my generation uh, when we get to that point in our life is to look at raising the caps, uh, the income caps on how that Social Security uh, is paid into. I think there are other changes we can look to, but the bottom line is making sure that the dollars that you pay in to the Social Security Fund are there for you when you need it. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nancy. Next question comes from Laura Landerman-Garber. Hi there. Hi, thank you so much for defending our freedoms and for eloquently 
um, supporting your brothers and sisters in uniform. It's, yeah, I it's hear my, that it's each time privilege. you speak. It's, it's you. very moving. I'm a psychologist here in New Hampshire, and so mental health accessibility and treatment is, is a quite a big issue for me. Yes. I work with a lot of veterans and active duty um, military men and women, and the staggering rates of suicide, some, some say 20 plus a day, is really... Um, it's, it's breaking my heart as a professional and personally as, a, as an American. What message do you have for our service families, our servicemen and women, and specifically what plans do you have to address this issue? These are yeah. your brothers and sisters, Absolutely. our families, and it's a national crisis. Yeah. Well, thank you, first of all, for the help and service that you're providing to them. You're welcome. It's unfortunate that still in our society, but especially in the military, there is such a huge stigma around those who go and seek help. You know, and I can tell you, and I'm sure you've experienced this, but I've seen how difficult it is um, for anyone, but especially those who've worn the uniform. Yes. We're strong, we're warriors. We've survived the rigors of combat and we've made it home. And to then accept the vulnerability and the perceived weakness that, oh, I have to go get help or something's not quite right with me is, is wrong. That perception and that stigma is something that we as a, as a society and leadership within the military, that culture absolutely needs to change to one where just like we go to the doctor for a checkup, similarly, we need to go for a mental health checkup, just like we need treatment if we've got a wound or a, a, an open wound or broken bone or whatever physically, Sometimes we need that mental health treatment to be able to get us to where we need to be. It, it breaks my heart to see, and I know people who I've served with. Uh, one of my soldiers during my second deployment, uh, deployed many times, uh, came home and, and eventually lost that battle here at home and took his own life. Uh, so this hits close to home and why it's so important for us to deal with this stigma and to dedicate whatever resources are necessary to be able to make sure that there are providers like you who are available at that moment when our veterans ask for help. When they ask for help, they can't run through bureaucracies, they can't be told no, they can't get a voicemail on the phone and say call back the next day because the next day may be too late. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Next question comes from Carolyn Morrill. Uh, thank you for being here. I hope to go to your state this spring. Oh, good. <laughs> so you've already hit my question, so I'm going to more or less follow up. Okay. Two, uh, two top priorities of Americans is the universal background check yes. and also the prescription drug reductions, which you say Congress is not doing their job. Yeah because of cooperation, plus all the pork that's added into these laws. We have no idea how many What's pages there are. Exactly. So this is why nothing's getting done. So what specifically would you do to push Congress to pass something? Yeah, uh, universal background checks. Thankfully in the House, we passed that bill, I think it's been, what, 160 days ago now, and it's sitting on the Senate's desk, making it uh, the opportunity for the Senate to do the right thing that the vast majority of Americans support universal background checks. 
This is the pressure that we as leaders, but also the country needs to place on Mitch McConnell to bring that bill to the floor of the Senate for a vote. Um, I think people underestimate the power of our voices, that when we ratchet up the pressure, when we make those calls, we send out those tweets, send those emails, send those letters, uh, we have the ability to bring about a change in Washington uh, when there is a, a stubborn barrier like the one we're facing around this issue in Washington, especially in the Senate. Um, similarly with the prescription drug issue, uh, the power of big money's influence in Washington has to be stopped. Uh, I think that members of Congress should not be allowed to take those PAC contributions from those lobbyists. So you completely take that out of the equation. And I think we have to end the revolving door, which is really illegal corruption in our own government, where you've got politicians who are working one day, members of Congress, to regulate a specific industry, and then they leave their job and potentially go work for that industry or that company, making millions of dollars uh, and benefiting from that position that they just held, that position of power that they just held. I think ultimately this comes down to the people, the power of the people, using that uh, to remind members of Congress who they actually work for. They don't work for Big Pharma. You, we, the people, have the power to hire and fire people in Washington. They need to understand that if they don't do what is necessary to bring down the cost of prescription drugs, to hold prescription drug companies accountable for the opioid epidemic that they have fueled and are continuing to fuel across the country, hold pharmacies accountable, unless they start standing up and working for the people, then they're gonna lose their job. This is a big issue and it impacts so many other challenges that we're facing. Ultimately, it comes down to people uh, standing up for ourselves and for our future because this is the only thing that has the ability to overcome those who have uh, lost their way and are not fulfilling the responsibility they have to the people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. Next question comes from Jeremy Love. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, in the most, the first of the most recent debates, there was a question asked about uh, nuclear weapons no first use policy. Yeah. This just happened to coincide with an uh, announcement by China where they recommitted to their no first use policy that they adopted back in 1964. I'm curious if you could explain why it is that you support a no first use policy. Uh, I'm very concerned about the nuclear threat that we're facing. Uh, as we have ever escalating tensions with other nuclear armed countries like Russia and China, it's important that the United States have a no first use policy, something that there's a lot of controversy around lately in Washington, but there really shouldn't be as we look through history in the near misses that we have had uh, that could have sparked off a nuclear war uh, that would have resulted in the annihilation of our planet. That's really what we're talking about here. And, I think you're familiar with some of these examples, but you know, someone launched a uh, satellite. I think Russia thought, oh my gosh, this is a missile coming into our country. If you had had that uh, first use policy in place, that missile could have sparked off a nuclear war. We've seen a number of, of these different examples that really show what kind of risk we're facing. We just saw this last year in Hawaii, yeah. where we got this alert uh, early on a Saturday morning saying, missile incoming, 
<laughs> seek shelter immediately. This is not a drill. And what we found was as the, uh, seek shelter immediately. You're under attack. You have minutes to live. Where do you go? There is no shelter. There is no shelter. And that's just as true of us here in this hall in New Hampshire as it was for us in Hawaii. If we got an attack here right now, there is no shelter. There's no place to go. This is the big lie and the big hoax that exists where our leaders have brought us to this point where nuclear strategists are saying we're closer to the to nuclear catastrophe than we have been before and yet there is no shelter. And so my focus on this issue and I've been very focused on it because I'm concerned about this existential threat that we face um, is making sure that that we all realize this it doesn't have to be this way. This is not a status quo that we have to accept. In fact, we cannot accept it. Uh, and this is where, within my first week as president and commander in chief, I would call for a summit, specifically with Russia and China, focused on this nuclear threat that's posed to all of our people and to our planet, recognizing that there's no winning a nuclear war. There is no winning a nuclear war. And this nuclear arms race that President Trump has kicked off uh, is only making us less safe and is further draining taxpayer dollars coming out of our pockets to build more of these weapons that will continue to increase and escalate this threat, undoing the good work that's been done through things like the INF Treaty, things like the New START Treaty that this president is looking to allow to expire. Uh, he's taken us in the wrong direction and it's a great risk and danger. Uh, this, is, this is the main catalyst for my deciding to run for president going through what we went through in Hawaii last year and recognizing we need strong leadership that will walk us away from the brink of nuclear disaster, work to end this new Cold War and maximize um, the diplomatic tools that we have available to accomplish that. Awesome. Thanks so Thank much. You. Thank you. Thanks Jeremy. for raising this issue. Next question comes from Maureen Maletis. Good morning. Hi. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Currently, there are five million Americans living with Alzheimer's or other related forms of dementia at a projected cost of $1.1 trillion by 2050. If you're elected president, what would you do to end this public health crisis, and would you outline that in a plan? Yes, I would look forward to uh, outlining the details of this throughout the course of our campaign, but uh, my grandfather had Alzheimer's, and uh, it, was, it was very challenging as a family to see how that, that impacted my grandmother. And... Um, just how tough it was to watch him go through um, all of the challenges and difficulties and hardship that come with that. We as a country are not dedicating the kinds of resources and attention to those who are suffering with Alzheimer's and to the families who are being impacted that we need to. Uh, this is a major area within our healthcare system that we need to address and that we need to focus on. This is a, one reason why I'm a big proponent for a Medicare for all type plan that would make sure that uh, families across this country who need that help, who need that care are able to get it and that we are focusing on the kind of research that we need to in order to help best help those who are dealing with Alzheimer's. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks Maureen. Next question comes from Marie Mulroy. Hi, how are you? Welcome. Hi, good. Yes. Uh, my question, I think you started to talk about it, but as president, how would you get the dark money? Out of, out of elections, yeah. and also would you call out the people who are taking it and who are benefiting from it? Yes, I would. Short answer <laughs> to your second half of your question. Yes, absolutely. We have to call out uh, that dark money and, and where it's coming from and who 
it's being used to influence. Uh, I think there are some, some immediate things that we can do. Uh, you know, Citizens Unite, overturning Citizens United, I think is a big one because these super PACs are a huge vehicle for this dark money that we don't know, we as voters don't know where it's coming from, yet it's being used to fund millions of dollars for TV ads that, that influence elections. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the PAC contributions that are coming from lobbyists are what many politicians rely on to get elected. Um, the phenomena that we are seeing, which is amazing, of more individuals across this country funding people-powered campaigns like mine, you know, people saying, hey, you know, $5, $10 a month contributing towards making sure that we are focused on serving the needs of our people without any possibility of influence from these special interests or greedy corporations is what we need of all of our elected officials. Uh, and third, we've got to close that revolving door in Washington that, uh, I mean, it, it, it is what has turned this swamp of Washington really into a cesspool. And we see it with elected officials and we see it with high level unelected officials in our government in many different industries, in the financial industry, uh, on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. People who will leave Wall Street banks, go into positions as regulators. Okay, you take a big pay cut, but guess what? Once you leave that and you go back in the industry that you were supposed to be regulating, you get your payday, right? right. You see the same thing in the defense industry, unfortunately. Whether it's talking about members of Congress or senior um, executive positions, or sometimes even those who are in the uniform who are responsible for contracting. Or when you're working in the Pentagon one day and you're writing these massive billion dollar contracts, going and leaving the next day and working for the very same company that you've just written that contract for. Now people say, okay, you've got these cooling off periods where a member of Congress, for example, can't be a lobbyist for I think two years. Give me a break. <laughs> That's not enough. Members of Congress should not be allowed to become lobbyists when they leave office, period. Because this is a choice that we make to pursue public service. And for those who are pursuing this route in order to profit at the end of it, mm -hmm. really shouldn't be there no. at all. So these are the kinds of changes that I would support and am trying to bring about now as a member of Congress and that I would look forward to signing into law as president. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Marie. And next question comes from Benjamin Pelletier. Hello. Hi, thank Benjamin. You Aloha. Thank you. Um, what event in the military has had an effect on you personally, and how did that shape you as a politician? In uh, my first deployment to Iraq, I served in a field medical unit. Uh, every single day, uh, I was confronted with the very high human cost of war. Uh, the very first task that I had every morning was to go through a list, name by name, of every American casualty and injury that had occurred in the previous 24 hours. And it was heart-wrenching every single day, uh, name by name, seeing those who were paying the price. For war and understanding and knowing behind every one of those names, you know, our loved ones, parents, children, husbands, wives, family members, and friends, uh, worried sick at home. Going through that experience, uh, seeing firsthand uh, friends of mine who I served with who were killed in combat. Uh, I'll never forget the very first. Uh, casualty that we had from our unit as we gathered in our camp 
40 miles north of Baghdad to pay tribute to that young soldier's sacrifice, lining up, taking turns, saluting his empty boots, his rifle and dog tags, and his helmet, saying our last goodbye. Uh, going through these experiences changed everything for me in my life. I was not the same person when I came home from that war as I was when I went. And it's why I am so deeply committed, so deeply committed to doing everything I possibly can to make sure that not a single one of our men and women in uniform, not another service member has their life sacrificed in the pursuit of wars that have nothing to do with keeping the American people safe. It's a disservice to those who are courageous and volunteer to put their life on the line to serve our country. What greater act of love for country and love for the American people than that? We've got to honor that sacrifice, that willingness to serve by making sure that we only send our service members on missions truly worthy of their sacrifice and that serve the interests of the American people, that serve the interests of keeping the American people safe. That is the commitment that I have made with my life and that I will continue to carry through as president and commander in chief and to make sure that we take care of them uh, when they come home. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. And we've hit the 30 minute mark of our online oh, version quick. of conversation with the candidate. So thank you to our studio audience. Thank you so much. Thank you to Congresswoman Gabbard for Thank answering the questions. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.